Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Colcast. I'm Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Gorf, your ambassador of a cappella from such groups as Beat Achon, the first professional Jewish a cappella group, Kol Zimra, and the new Pella Singers. It's my honor and pleasure to do my second annual summer substitute for regular host Mike Boxer, who, I understand, is so broken up over the forthcoming three weeks of memorializing the siege and destruction of the ancient Bate Mikdash, the holy first and second temples, that he couldn't pull himself together enough to be here. Well, his deeply spiritual and emotional crisis is to our benefit because I love being in this chair, sharing with you, my dear Jakas, my Jewish a cappella music and memories. If the three weeks are upon us, that means it's summertime and camp. Our first track is the ultimate Jewish summer camp track for me. Arranged by Sean Simcha Altman, whom we'll be talking about a little later in the show, and guest starring the Chanichim, the campers of Camp Mosheva. From Jewish a cappella treasury, volume one Shabbos, here's Havdalah. <laughs> Sasovic, 
Listening to the Cole Cast. Havdalah, or if you prefer, Havdalah. Arranged and performed by Sean Simcha Altman, with lead vocals by Soul Farm's Noah Solomon, mixed by Rockapella's Jeff Thatcher, and executive produced by myself, Gorf, your guest host on this pre-three weeks summer edition of The Cole Cast. Welcome. Every show I do, I like to invite a special guest, a luminary of Jewish a cappella, for an interview. As for today's... 
Gentlemen and ladies, we have a unique opportunity where we are turning the tables because your usual host is not going to be the person who asks the questions and gives you information. He is going to be answering my questions and giving you information. I present to you now, courtesy of the modern cell phone system, your Colcast host with the most, who is going to tell us all about his life, his insights on acapella, and hopefully a wonderful chicken soup recipe. Mike Boxer, welcome to the Colcast. Well, thank you, Jordan. It's nice to be on my show. It's your pleasure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mike, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you on your own show. And the reason that I've asked you here, even though you wanted a month off, is because there are so many insights that you otherwise wouldn't be able to give us in the context of being an objective host that uh, I thought it might be nice to give those to your regular listeners, to our regular listeners, in this forum. So without further ado, let me ask you, to give us, please, your musical background, your influences, where you studied, what you listened to. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Let's see if I can do the, the life story without it sounding like a life story. I grew up in the thriving metropolis of Spring Valley, New York, which is not probably quite as, as famous to uh, our listeners as uh, the town next door, which is Muncie, New York. The product of the public schools and the product of the public school music education and a lot of great inspiration from some music teachers I had um, in those schools. Um, kind of uh, had parents. I was fortunate enough to, to have a mom and dad who were uh, willing to close the door and sit in the other room while I banged on the piano in the house until that banging started to resemble some melodies from kids' shows I was hearing on TV, and those melodies started to resemble actual accompaniment and things like that, and kind of explored the musical space that way. Played uh, cello and piano and um, alto sax all throughout um, my high school years and um, was bit by the acapella bug by an encouraging um, friend of a roommate um, and when I got to Binghamton University, that was where I, how I found my way into Cassette. That was how I found acapella. That was how I found the really fascinating, inspirational marriage of, of Judaism, spirituality, and music, and um, kind of never really let go of that. And um, that's kind of pushed me into, it's kind of how I am, where I am. How much do you interact with musical instruments these days? These days, not nearly as much as I would like to. I do the, the occasional club date here and there. Doing what? I do a couple of weddings um, every now and then. I haven't really done anything along the lines of, you know, playing out anywhere in the city just for fun. Um, been meaning to become one of the multitudes of YouTube covers. I feel like I'm going to get around to that at some point. I'm starting to get that bug a little bit, too, so maybe you'll see me on piano and vocal at some point. The way I remember being exposed to you for the first time is through a solo album that you created. Actually, that may not have been our first interaction, but certainly it was the first recorded music, I recall, of yours, and it was mostly piano-oriented music or piano-man-oriented music. I don't even think there was... Well, there was one a cappella piece on there, but that's where you began. So where did you see yourself in your musical beginnings going? And... Are you surprised by where you're at now? I definitely am. 
that solo album kind of came about in, in a weird kind of way. When I was in college, one of the jobs that I got, actually through doing the studio work with Caspesa, was I was hired by the local recording studio. And it was really like a great state-of-the-art facility, and um, they paid me peanuts. But one of the really great perks of working there was the guy said, you know what? If you want to just uh, come into the studio and do something, you know, just whatever, you got the code, just come in and, you know, play around and do whatever you want. So I took that quite seriously, and I said, you know what? I'm going to record an entire album. And um, I did a whole bunch of nights, you know, I would come in after everything was closed up, and, and I did a bunch of stuff, you know, between like 11 p.m. and literally until probably about 5 in the morning, and then we'd go home and go to sleep, and... Having been exposed to the Jewish music world, I felt like I was going to be this revolutionary guy and expose it to current pop trends and, and you know, really well-written, you know, thought-out, like, uh, pop-rock kind of music. Unfortunately, as a musician and as a producer, I didn't really know what I was doing at that point in time. So the, the resources and um, the development, personally, didn't really coincide. So the end result was a solo Jewish album, which is on iTunes if anybody wants to sneak it out, although I'd prefer that they didn't, which kind of showed a good deal of promise, but wasn't quite there yet. Ah, Mike, I appreciate your modesty, but I think you're underselling that freshman effort. There's one song in particular that always stuck out to me as being something that was really original, passionate, putting it all out there. This so you know what, let's play this track. This song was one that I believe Koskes had covered a cappella. I have a soft place in my heart because of the emotions that it really brings out every time I hear it. The title is Birthright on the Colcast. We tore away five fingers and a gaze from loving eyes And an airplane with four letters took our spirits to the skies whether we knew why, we knew that we had to go. Oh, sat contemplating miles above the earth, in wonder of the legacy that was brought to us by birth. Had expectations, but there was no way to know. Oh, that seeing the land would make us children. That breathing the air alone would make us feel whole Touching the wall we feel the hand of Hashem Touching our hearts, touching our souls We drown out the echoes of resounding goodbyes And though it was life, it was like living a bone That we'd look around and into each other's eyes This is your captain speaking. We will be arriving shortly at Ben Gurion Airport. Thank you for flying with us and welcome to Israel. Felt the fears, the joy, the tears, the father's years before. And smiles from newfound brothers and made our hearts well even more. There would be something uplifting with every new day. Hey, hey. 
heights We live the life We learn what's true than the dice And Shabbos in Yerushalayim Redefined our lies For sure our only regret Was that we couldn't stay song is called Birthright, and it's from the solo freshman debut album by Mike Boxer, my special guest today, and of course our regular host on the Colcast. Mike, we were talking about your musical background and history, and why don't we take it into the future? Tell us, how did 613 come about? A bunch of guys, Cascas and guys and otherwise, kind of egged me on into doing this type of thing, and Beat Hong was really the only predecessor that indicated that anything like this could have any kind of success in a traditional format, let alone, you know, the really produced and, and contemporary one that we wanted to introduce to the world. Um, and we didn't, I didn't think it was going to take off. I just did it because it was fun, but it did. And it got kind of big and it got to, into something that 
takes us to foreign countries and, and um, has albums selling all around the world. And it just goes to show you, sometimes you put your all into something and, and you got nothing to show. And then sometimes where you least expect it, just the stuff that you really enjoy doing turns into something that is uh, really significant. Sometimes you put your all into an arrangement and it comes to naught, and sometimes you let the music guide you, and you end up with something that was not at all what you expected, but it's still wonderful in its own right. Yeah, there's def- I feel like I'm at a point now where um, I've, I've just, I just recently did my 200th acapella arrangement, which is something no one should ever be able to say, but that's besides the point. And it's, at this point, it's kind of a second nature kind of thing. Yeah, by the way, uh, I apologize for interrupting. Uh, Mazel Tov, Kiddush. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, it's, it's, um, at this point, it's just kind of a second nature kind of thing. I know what's going to work. I know where things are going to fall. It's less often that I'll start doing kind of things that are kind of experimental or uh, or what have you. But, you know, thinking back to, you know, when I was in development and really, you know, as artists, when aren't any of us still in development? But when I was still more kind of cutting the teeth, it's not coming to me right now exactly where it is. But some of the arrangements where it was like, this is going to be a visionary masterpiece. And this is, wow, like it's going to be a... You know, a Bohemian Rhapsody of, of something or other, and it comes out, and you just try too hard. And then there are other things where it's just kind of like, you know, this is going to be a really, really simple, minimalistic kind of thing. And sometimes there's beauty in minimalism and beauty in kind of just letting things happen as as they're going to happen. You know, both as a as a composer or as an arranger or a coordinator, producer, director, what have you. Sometimes if you just pull back, that's when the beauty happens. And I wish I had a specific uh, instance or or or, um, or piece or project to point to, but it's a theme that's been kind of revealing itself a little bit lately. And I think the next thing that 613 comes out with, publicly speaking, you're going to see kind of where I'm going with that. It's, uh, you know, no, no, there's no bells, there's no whistles. It's going to be very um, purist, and I'm very excited about it. Whoa. I am super intrigued, Mike. I hope you'll keep us posted on that project, especially considering my own background, Bitajon, Analog Age, Six Guys Around One Mike. Since then, working with all the latest technology, great singers, and you're bringing it full circle again? Cool. Yeah, hey, we'll have to talk about the purist thing also. I'm taking notes here as we're talking about all the subjects I have to go back to. You did an arrangement of Bohemian Rhapsody. Was that your Bohemian Rhapsody? Meaning, was that your Valhalla of arrangements? That was probably a great example to to talk about in terms of um, having grandiose delusions about things and expecting them to be really fantastic. Let's take a listen and judge for ourselves. As a creator, I know how hard I typically am on judging my own results. When other people will listen to it and go, that's fantastic. I don't see anything wrong with that at all. I love it. Here we go. Mike Boxer's Grand Opus on the Colcast. Is this a meat knife? Or can I cut the cheese? Where's the mushkiah? I am here now. What do you need? Open your eyes. Look up at those prize and see. Shine, 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 shine,
there's something like uh, one, two, three, four. There's there are nine parts with splits in that arrangement. So at, at certain parts in that arrangement, there are I think um, eleven or twelve different notes being sung plus percussion. And I'm sure that there are groups that do that routinely. But for me, that was like you know pulling out all the stops and forcing everybody in the group I was in at the time to be able to hold their own, which um, frankly wasn't always the case with everybody. Um, and you know we worked so hard for it. Uh, sorry, explain what splits means for those who were listening and don't know the technical term. Splits generally means like, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing how they're kind of like colloquialisms, and you kind of assume that everybody talks that way, and it's just something that happens at your school, and that's how they describe it. But with, yeah, the the um, the conventional term, I think, for the clinical term for splits, um, musically speaking, is divisi. Um, where maybe an arrangement, let's say it's got four parts, um, and the understanding is that maybe you'll have a, a four-person choir or an eight-person choir or a, you know, 10 or 12, and you'll have two or three people on each of those parts. There's a divisi. You'll find the, you know, the sopranos will be singing the same thing pretty much throughout, but there's an exception at one part where um, they are on two different notes, and they kind of have to split apart from each other for a second, hence the term splits. And that's something that you can do when you have large ensemble groups like in college, but when you have a group like 613, are splits possible, assuming you're sticking with the purest route and you're not doing overdubs? There are very rarely that that term will come into play in 613, just because um, with so few guys, and usually a dedicated soloist, dedicated bassist, and dedicated percussionist, anybody who's not doing any of those things has got to be on their own thing. Pentatonix is one of the few groups out there that I feel is pulling that off. Uh, with five people managing to stay busy sounding and full sounding with just five people. But with us, you know, I'm, I have six and sometimes I feel like I don't have enough resources to have all the things that I want to have musically. So we don't generally do splits. People kind of ask me, uh, buy one of your arrangements or use one of your arrangements, and I send them the list and say, here's an arrangement uh, with splits. And they'll tell me, I've got a four-person group. Can I perform this? And the answer is, uh, no, you cannot. So you got I would pay attention to the voicing and uh, see what's right for people. You talked about beauty in minimalism, and then you talked about a full sound. Is it possible to be minimalist and get a full sound? And is it possible to pack a song with all the bells and whistles and have a purist sound? I would say probably more so yes for, for the first one and not so much for the second one. But one of the things that I really miss is, uh, you know, my two college experiences in, in acapella were with Cassiasa, which was co-ed, and, you know, we were anywhere from 10 people to 16 people, and then with the Binghams and Crosbys, which was all-male, and we usually had anywhere from 12 to 15. And um, one of just my favorite, my favorite textures musically is that Glee Club-esque kind of open vowel, three-part or four-part chord with a big group of guys, so you get that kind of like, not rubbing against each other, but that kind of like distorted tonal center where everybody it's it's just nice and full but you're not doing necessarily more than than three notes and with 613 we do get that kind of click that kind of you know when it rings in tune that magic moment but you never have that choir fullness that you'll get with a with a larger group so it's it's actually 
it's the minimalist thing that gives you that big sound when you're in that setting. Um, and that's one of my, you know, my favorite moments. And I think that's what kind of keeps the audiences for college groups so interested. It's that, that very simple but very powerful sound that comes from it. Actually, you know, I see a lot of college groups trying to get really fancy, you know, the way that they might in the studio where you have an unlimited number of tracks and you can have 30 people or 40 people on your track. Um, and then trying to bring that to the stage, and it gets lost, and it gets thin, and maybe the rhythms don't all work together because there are so many going on, and it's hard to find the beat, and it gets a little bit too busy. So bells and bells and whistles, you know, if you're doing arpeggiations or you're doing experimental kind of sounds, you're doing percussion, you're doing two percussionists, you know, forget about miking it correctly. You know, it's a challenge to pull off, and you're definitely getting away from that simplicity. Keeping it arranged and simple and getting a full sound, actually, they're, they're, they kind of enhance each other. Gosh, there's so much that I want to touch on over here, but let's talk about your 613 sound specifically, and then we'll get to as much of the rest in the hour that we can. The thing that I love about 613 arrangements, and your arrangements in general, but I think I've begun to see some diversity in the types of things that you do, particularly when you're talking about college arrangements versus 613 arrangements. But again, sticking with 613, I love how each part is an individual symphony in its own right. And I like how when they're all put together, you get the forest for the trees. And I'm curious if you can please explain to us how you managed to pull that off, where each line is integral and interesting in and of its own. But when you add it all up, it equals something that's much greater than the sum of its parts. There's a few techniques that I, that I definitely embrace. And actually, there was um, something that's really kind of... Um, shape some of my direction, just artistically speaking, is something that you actually said to me a long time ago, and I can't remember what it was they were working on. It was probably that Ofinat track. Mim Komcha from Acapella Treasury Shabbos Volume 1. And I'm not sure how it configured in, but explain the difference between composing for yourself and composing for an audience. And it's actually something that grows out of a source of frustration, I think, for a lot of, you know, a lot of the groups that listen to the show and who are engaged in creating this music, which is that 90% of your audience doesn't hear the things that you do as a group and doesn't appreciate the kind of things that you worked on as a group, and he doesn't even know how to tell the difference. Right, right. Building off what I was saying before about Bohemian Rhapsody. If you, you know, you might be writing a song and you think these changes are just so revolutionary, and you've got these jazz harmonies, or you've got this thing and it's just not repetitive at all. It takes you in all kinds of different directions and it keeps you guessing. Well, what about a melody that sticks in your head, or what about something that? is simple enough that the non-musician can hum it back to you after it's done. So there's a big difference between satisfying yourself and satisfying an audience. And there's sometimes one or two hit tracks on a 613 album where you'll be able to tell, I'm doing it for me, and um, you know the motivation was, I want to do something that was cool musically, and it had a sharp nine or something. Give us an example. If you look at, at the Karlbach medley that's on our second album, it's uh, literally, it's a, it's a phrase, it's a, it's a tune, and people who know the song, it's the same thing, na 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 and it happens four times in a row, which means 16 different notes, mm -hmm. and there's probably within those 16 different notes the same exact thing four times in a row, 
there's probably 10 or 11 different chords that no one sees coming necessarily wants to be coming. But it was, we were, we were going to do this Karl Bach thing and it was so done to death. So we had to be cool about it. And I'm definitely proud of that, especially when we're able to pull it off in concert. It's not easily, but it was, you know, other than the listeners of the whole cast, who's going to really appreciate that? On the flip side, there's all kinds of stuff that happens in 613 arrangements, and it's really just kind of like for a logistical concern and for an accessibility concern. A lot of the structure of the 613 arrangements, you'll hear a bass line that is probably pretty independent of what's going on. You'll have your drummer, you'll have your soloist, and then you've got a three-part chord that's usually sticking to the same rhythm so that the notes can always sound together. So it's really just, you know, kind of like three fingers on a piano playing a chord. It's really, really simplistic, and it's done because, you know, we're guys who have uh, day jobs as much as we do this stuff, and um, time is of the essence, and our, our college listeners will find that out <laughs> in a rather rude way fairly soon. You know, we do that. It, it's a formula that works. It's not revolutionary. It's not sophisticated really in any way, but I stick to it as much as possible. Every once in a while, I'll deviate from that, and I'll take the three-part chord, and I'll have them have a syllable at a different time, so it arpeggiates for a second, then it'll go back to the chord. Because that's what makes people happy, and that's what keeps the song full, and that's what makes it easy to learn, and that's what always guarantees I'll have a, um, you know, a full triad going at all times. I hate to say it, but a lot of 613 stuff is a bit dumbed down, but in a strategic way. It's that strategy that I think is what makes it very successful. Let's take one of your earliest hits, uh, Lachado D. And I've had the pleasure of singing the backup parts. I don't remember in what context, but there was some time or other when I had to sing it. I think it was Dayton, Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's right. That's right. Good memory. For me, uh, all the years and all the miles. It's like Indiana Jones. Uh, what was that great phrase that they had in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah. Uh, it's It's... Uh, it's not the time, sweetheart. It's the miles. <laughs> yeah. So I was really knocked out by how, when it was deconstructed, that sophisticated arpeggiation was really rather simple. And it was a question of looking at the notes as a puzzle and dividing the puzzle into three parts. And if you could just overlap the three parts in exactly the right way, then it would sound really sophisticated when, in fact, it was really simple. I, I remember the constructing the backgrounds for that. It was, um... And I think that that probably gets to what you were saying before, where you were talking about the beauty and minimalism and yet having a full sound, and I think this is something that all groups can learn from. It, it, really, it really is kind of a puzzle. It's, it's, um, yeah, talk about that. I think... Being a piano player and knowing, you know, kind of like, you know, the movement of the keys and the notes, but it helps you 
to visualize where things need to go. And maybe you've got like three fingers on the keyboard and you know that they're each doing a certain thing. And, um, that can kind of each represent a voice because if your fingers need to twist in kind of a weird kind of way, odds are the voice leading is probably not there either. So I remember just kind of like taking out a notebook and when I arrange sometimes that I need to figure out, like you said, like a mathematical equation where stuff's going to go, I'm not using a staff. I find it um, not all that productive. I'm just doing kind of on a, on a grid sort of thing. Okay, you have to explain what that means. Sometimes it's just a spiral notebook and I'm just writing the name of the note kind of uh, represent on a... It's hard to describe without seeing, but I've got kind of my own my own notation method, which just makes it a lot faster to write down and a lot easier for me to look at. It's just it's just the, the parts going by just on a sheet of paper and where the notes hit, and it gives a much better sense of the timing and where they hit. Mm. It's 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 shorthand that captures both the rhythm and the harmonies at the same time. That's exactly right. You know what? Maybe you can do us a favor and post an example of this, a visual example of this, on the Colcast website so we can see it. I might have some of that lying around. I'll have to see. Eventually, it makes its way into notation so that other people can read it. Yeah. When I'm trying to figure out where something's got to go, um, that's what's, what has been working for me. But I'm also not the best sight reader in the world, so there's there's that. I think there's a lot of people who, who read well and would say, of course I use that, because it makes perfect sense. That's why people have been using this notation of, of music you know, for, for centuries. Now, I work with Sean Altman, who's a guitar player primarily. Right. And I'm wondering, and you've worked with him also, I'm wondering if there's a difference in how you guys approach visualizing the arrangements because you're coming at it from a keyboard perspective perspective he's coming at it from strings i'll i'll tell you i obviously you know I've, I've hung out with sean a lot no stranger to how talented he is i mean he's obviously more talented than most people on earth and so the thing was i had the same reaction to finding this out about him after the fact having having worked with him as i did about roger thomas who is kind of the lead musical guy about with Take Six. And, you know, having experienced uh, them, and I didn't work with Roger, but I worked with people who worked with him and got to see some of his work. And just kind of dealing with them musically and working with them and getting exposed to their stuff. And then later, somebody saying, oh, by the way, he doesn't read music and he doesn't know any music theory. And my response was, come on, stop. No, you're lying to me. How is that possible? So I would kind of, I would love to jump into that head because how is that possibly happening when you cannot quantify those things is beyond me it's amazing to me so how does sean altman work is is it different than how i work probably i could never i could not tell you i would love to know you know what in a future cold cast when i'm subbing next year in 2013 god willing i will ask him that question i'm mostly gut instinct i took a year of music theory in college and the funny thing about music theory at Boston University is that they put the classes from 8 to 9 in the morning because they figure only somebody who's really serious about it and is a college student is going to wake up at 7.45 to get an 8 a.m. class. That's just me. <laughs> you know what? It's pretty effective because these classes are an hour and they're four or five times a week. So uh, right. they, they, you, you really you have to put the work in in order to get anything out of it. And I think one of the reasons that I'm a failed keyboard player is because... I learned by the rote method where the teacher just sat down next to me and said, here are the notes, play them until you've memorized them. And I always wanted to understand, well, what was the reason behind why Mozart 
put the notes in the order that he did. And years later, I would figure out that music is math, and I'm pretty horrid at math, which is probably why I was pretty horrid at that also. But there is a lot that you can do on instinct. There is a lot more you can do when you truly understand the math behind it. And I think that most people who have that skill, such as you, have a real advantage. Have you found that to be the case, or have you found there to be enough Paul McCartneys out there that there's this genius gene that compensates for lack of technical knowledge? the nature-nurture thing. I've met so many people in my life who weren't born with necessarily so much talent and don't really have it, but wanted it so bad and worked so hard at it that they made themselves into something amazing. Mm. And I've also met people who were born with tremendous amounts of talent, and you can kind of, and, and either you know they also put in the work, which made them superheroes, or they didn't, and they're just people that you could tell have this knack and have this thing in them, and they don't know how to use it, and it's the most frustrating thing in the world. The original incarnation of 613 was people who could sing in tune, usually, and they weren't musicians. And um, it, was, it was a lesson in, in how to deal with people for me, because I wanted to say, no, it's the third. No, it's the fifth. Actually, it's a, it's a contrapuntal thing, or um, you're it's a different, whatever. And it just, with the original six guys that we had, maybe Moshe got it. Moshe Cohen. Moshe is a tremendous musician and trained and one of the, the hugest talents you'll ever see. He's an example of where, bo- where both of those things were true. But the other guys didn't get it. They just said, teach me the part. I'll sing it in tune. I'll do the best I can. And as those guys moved on and we replaced them with people who were, whether or not they were vocalists per se, were musicians, it just got easier and easier for me to make us better because... You have an easier time memorizing a part when you understand, I'm singing this here because it's the fifth of the chord. It comes quicker to you. And the less time you have to worry about memorizing, the more time you can spend on, um, you know, fine-tuning stuff and being able to sing it like the back of you, you know, like the back of your hands. You don't have to worry about it. And you're better on stage and you have more energy and your pitch is better because you're thinking about one less thing. It's just, uh, it makes it a lot easier. And now... All the guys in the group are musicians, and I'm just loving it. It's such a such a privilege, you know, to have that part of it too. You know, it was kind of when we have auditions for people. You know, it was a thing that we all kind of had to warm up to, but that sometimes I had some convincing to do when telling people, "No, we need this guy because." You know, we saw a lot of guys who were just could sing the pants off of any lead vocal, but musically speaking, you know, they they didn't, you know. They didn't know an A from a B. And, um, you know, there's a lot of value. We took guys who knew the A from the B and the C and the D and the E and F and the G and weren't necessarily your star soloists. But, you know, man, am I glad that we had those people or had those people as the case may be. It's amazing what time teaches you about what's valuable in a group. And it's not solo ability all the time. And solo ability is great, but personality, dedication, reliability, and musicianship for me, are the most important things. Oh, I totally relate to that. I know you do. We've we've talked about it. I know you do. But they're so often neglected. Yeah, I will always take somebody for their personality over musicality because at the end of the day, 
you have to get along really well together. And I think that shows up in the music, but it also shows up in people wanting to show up, which obviously is something that collegiate groups face all the time, getting people to come for rehearsals and performances and not give you excuses like I had homework to do or my girlfriend was sick or I got a call from my mom or I stubbed my toe. When you're in a professional group, you want to make sure that these people are going to hop to it. And when they hop to it, they really have their stuff down. Something you said before reminds reminded me that Adam Fishman, one of the founding members of Bitachon, once said about me, never has someone with so little done so much. And what he meant was, I was one of those force of will people. I didn't necessarily have that craft going in, but I wanted it so badly that I worked at it. And then there were people in the group who uh, shall remain nameless, who had more talent in their pinky than I had in my entire body, but they just couldn't finish anything. And I think one of my greatest sources of pride was always getting them to actually finish something and putting it out there because that one song would be more brilliant than the entire album combined. I think there are dozens of people who are just nodding their heads along to you right now. <laughs> especially especially because we have so many listeners who are the movers and shakers of their groups. And and it, it amazes me. You know, I, I do I produce albums for, you know, a bunch of different groups, you know, in the Jewish world and, and outside of it. And I think, you know, if one if there was such a thing as like organizational psychology for musical groups or acapella groups, I think a central theme that would emerge is that all the good groups have the obsessed one. They have the one or the two people who, others be damned, they are going to accomplish this, and they are going to have greatness, whether everyone likes it or not. And that sounds negative, but it's such a positive, and it's just, you know, it was the same as was true of me, and, uh, you know, the whole others who shall remain nameless thing that goes for me as well. But, you know, when I was a musical director of a college group, not everybody wanted it in the same way. And not everybody wanted to admit that. And everybody had their idea of what the norm should be. And even just juggling that is a challenge in and of itself. But groups that are great, more often than not, the the truly great groups are the ones that have the buy-in from everybody. But sometimes the buy-in from everybody doesn't happen without the force of will people. And a lot of times those force of will people are just like you, the people who come in with the least experience or talent, but the drive is what it's all about. Yeah, and I like to say you can't legislate passion, and one of the hardest things for somebody in their teens or their 20s to understand is that they're never going to be able to make everyone care the way that they care, and you have to just accept that, and you have to roll with it and figure out ways to get things done where it may not seem fair that you have to do the vast majority of the work and that everybody gets equal credit or equal stage time or whatever it might be that you feel is your recompense. But that's just the reality of things. And if you can accept that, then I think 90% of your pressure goes away and you just move on to getting great work done. That's absolutely right. And every once in a while, you have the the amazing fortune to find yourself surrounded with with like-minded people. And that's that's one of the things that has been an amazing source of pride to watch about my alma mater in the past few years. You know, every group has its ups and downs. There was, you know, there was definitely some, you know, kind of a, a lull, you know, maybe like a little bit of a passive phase for the group some years back. 
and but they got the benefit of, of a leader or two like that who really wanted to push it along and you know kind of against the grain got some great things to really happen and then attracted some people and just great leader after great leader kind of pushed the group forward and you know I look at them now and it just seems like everybody there is so enthused and so hungry for it, and it's a beautiful thing because you know that not only do you have the the leadership through to see it happen, but that leadership has the support. So it's it's really nice to see some that happen to something that you poured your heart into and makes you excited to see where it's going to go next. They probably have a good succession plan also because groups that succeed are those who have the juniors and seniors in the leadership position, giving the freshmen and sophomores a, a sense of ownership over the group. It's not, I'm a junior and a senior, and I had to play the second or third fiddle, so to speak, when I was in your position, and now I'm the boss, and you're going to do what I say. Rather, it's giving people an opportunity to learn what you know, so that way when you do graduate and leave, which is inevitable, unless you're in Queens College, Dees Moret. That was a little joke there. (laughs) We love them. We love them. (laughs) All joking aside, the point that I'm making here is that in order for a group to maintain its legacy— and to evolve into the future, to become something even greater than what it's been in the past, the senior members have to let go of whatever ego they may have about the great work that they're doing, teach the junior members not only the technical skills, but also the management. And that is the best insurance and assurance of a group's continuance ad infinitum. Returning to the subject of 613, Mike, you walked us through the evolution of the group from the original lineup of members to its present lineup. I have a treat. Well, I think this will be a treat for us. I don't know how you'll feel about it. But since I'm in the driver's seat, you're going to be my passenger. I found, quite by accident while I was looking for the Karlbach medley clip that we played a little bit earlier, in fact, I found a recording that... 613 made in December of 2004 of a song in rehearsal. So what you're about to hear is the first iteration of 613 singing their song around one microphone. Coolest part is if you listen closely in the beginning, you'll hear in the background the sounds of New York City traffic. Somebody must have left open a window. And if there was ever a great segue between the past the present, and Mike, the project that you said you're working on right now, which is to, in the future, bring us back to the past. Six guys around one mic, a purist sound. Well, let's take a listen and admire just how good 613 was even in the beginning. Here's home. Take 
Exclusive to Colcast listeners, a bootleg of 613 in rehearsal from 2004. Gosh, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of the Colcast, and there's still so much more I want to chat about with you, Mike. During the break, we agreed to pick this up on another Colcast episode in the fall or so. As Mike, you have big plans for the immediate upcoming Colcast episodes. So, until then, everybody in the Jewish Acapella Jaka audience, email me at gorf at voicesforisrael.org. That's gorf, like frog backwards, at voicesforisrael, F-O-R-Israel.org. And let me wish Mike and all of you a very happy Back to the Future Future Day. Yes, I'm recording this on June 27, 2012. The day that Marty McFly flies the DeLorean time machine into the future, 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 which may actually be the most holy day of all for Mike Boxer. Amazing Yadim. Those of you who understand, understand. I'm Gorf, your ambassador of acapella, wishing you a happy summer, easy fasts, and of course, much Jewish harmony. Call to Shalom. Emu <laughs>